If you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have one, I encourage you to grab the hardcover black Bible near you on your chair or uh, click there on your phone. I want you to see God's Word for us this morning. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 6 in Romans verses 1 through 14. I want to pray once more asking the Lord for help having heard the word. So let's, let's read Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being Raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Do you pray once more with me? Father, I pray having heard your word for our church this morning, I pray that you would encourage us challenge us, convict us uh, where we need it. God, I, I believe that in a, a, a group like this gathering together, some who have come into this place rejoicing and some who have come in mourning, some who have come in um, after suffering, uh, some coming in having much, some coming in having walked 
in faithful obedience this week than some having come in fallen yet again. So God, would you meet us where we are at, reminding us of the truth of your word and that we might walk out here transformed, changed again with our eyes on you. We need you, Christ. And so by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us afresh this morning. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, is it, is it, they're all behind it? Oh, here we go. I just was, when we were singing that last song, um, here we, here we go. Uh, and by grace we'll stand on your promises, and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. So speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. By grace, this morning we need to stand on his promises. And Paul spends the first two-thirds of this passage reminding us of promises so that we can stand on them. That's what the verse 11 was building to. All of these promises building up to this point. So consider your, those things to be true. Consider those things to be true. So asking the Lord to speak to us in that way. We want to look at Romans chapter 6. And, um, and it's helpful if we'll consider the context. And uh, if you don't remember, we've been... Uh, walking through the book of Romans up to this point. But back in Romans chapter 3, there was a question uh, or questions that were being asked, uh, specifically in verse 8, where the, the Jews had these questions in their mind, asking them at different times and in different places that Paul brought in, in the writing of Romans where, where they would ask something like, and why... Not, why not do evil that good may come? Of which Paul just really didn't even answer. I mean, it was in his mind just silly to think that you would continue doing evil so that good might abound even more so. But he doesn't answer it there. And he continues to give the rest of chapter 3, the rest of chapter 4, the rest of chapter 5. And then when you get to chapter 6, there's almost... A reminder of that question, Uh, kind of saying, and I've been getting to it. I know I didn't answer it back there, but here we are. I'm ready to answer it. But all of the answer comes based on all of the truth that we have heard in chapter 3, 4, and 5 up to this point. And you heard the question, the, the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, Paul says. And this is, this is the question before, beforehand. And, it, and it's often the question that, that might come when you hear someone continue to tell you that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if it is solely of grace and it's not up to anything that I do, then, I mean, what, what does it really matter what I do then? 
If, if we're really saved by grace, then it doesn't matter if I continue in sin or not. Why, why not continue in sin and, and just cheap, uh, treat sin cheaply and just not care about it that much and just continue on in it? To which Paul says, by no means. By no means. It, it's illogical to Paul to, for, for, for people to think that because in thinking that, they have forgotten the price that had been paid to make the grace possible. This happens in our house, uh, even as parents. It may happen in your house. It may happen in your marriage. It may happen in your workplace. You show grace, show grace, show grace, show grace. And after a time, it almost seems like, yeah, grace is all that there is. I deserve grace. Everyone gets grace. We all get grace. You get grace. I get grace. We all get grace. When in reality, we've forgotten how that grace was made possible. The sacrifice behind the scenes that makes grace possible. When you forgive someone and forgive someone and forgive someone, it might lead someone to not feel so serious about their sin that hurts the other person because they've been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven, but they've forgotten that Christ died to forgive that person. And that person's showing forgiveness towards this person simply because of what Christ has done. And this person is forgetting about the ultimate sacrifice. And so it, it treats sin cheaply. And we ought not to do that, Paul says. And we ought not to do it, and Paul's argument might be illustrated in this way, um, because we were once, chapter 5, in Adam, but because of Christ and through faith in Christ, we are now in Christ. We were all born into sin, born, born dead in our sins and trespass, trespasses. We were in Adam, but by grace, through faith in Christ alone, we are now in Christ. If you've repented of your sins, believed upon Jesus followed him in baptism, walking in faithful obedience with him, you can rest assured according to the promises of God and the fruit that's being born in your life, you're in Christ. You're on a new team. Why in the world, if you're in Christ, would you live as if you're in Adam? This is the question that's, that's being asked before Paul at this point. And, and to imagine it, just imagine in, in the midst of a season, yep, here we go. We're going sports for a second, okay? Ian's locked in. All right, imagine for a season, you start the season out on one team. And you've practiced and prepared and learned and you've got your name sewn on the uniform. You've, you're, you're on that team, but in the middle of the season, something happens and you are transferred you are traded. You switch places to another team. And now you're learning new plays. Now you have a new uniform. Now you have a new team name. Now you have new teammates, this, that, or the other. How ridiculous would it be for you on this new team to run those old plays? Or to come out of the locker room with your old team's jersey on, running out on the field, and getting ready to, to, to play the game? 
it, it would just be ridiculous, right? I mean, it would just be unheard of for that to actually happen. And Paul is saying the same ought to be true in our Christian lives. It's not what, what we're not going to say. I want to say this from the very beginning. It's not saying that having been taken, transferred, traded from in Adam to in Christ that you won't ever sin again. It's just saying that you ought not to continue in the ways of the past and that you ought to consider yourself on this new team. It would be the same in marriage for though you may have dated somebody in the past, once you've been married to your spouse, you would not ever consider yourself still able to go and to be a part of a relationship with the other. It's just ridiculous, Paul says, by no means. And so this is the, that's the illustration to kind of grasp what we're talking about here, what Paul is really laying out for us here. And it's that question there in 6, 1 through 2 that, that really gives us the framework for the whole passage. Are we to continue in sin Continue in Adam, continue in our old ways so that this grace that we've received may just continue to abound. Remember, we, we saw the language of like pouring over, never-ending fountain of grace just continue to come out, come out, come out. To which Paul says, by no means. The New American Standard Bible says, far from it. The Christian Standard Version says, absolutely not. You can hear the emphasis in, in these things. The message says, I should hope not. I should hope not. Are we to continue? I, I should hope not. Why, why would you do such a thing? Uh, he, he goes on, he asks another question. How can we? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Answer, you can't. You can't. How can we continue being in Christ, continue to be living as if we're in Adam? You can't. You just can't. If the Holy Spirit has brought us to life by His power alone and His, and his power alone, there's no way we, continue, we can continue to go back the other way. If we continue in sin, in the old ways of Adam, unrepentant, not sorry, having no desire to change, desiring to continue in those things, it, it's very clear that we actually haven't been transferred and traded to be in Christ by grace through faith. So Paul answers the question that some had been asking that he brought up three chapters earlier. He now brings up again and he answers this question with just some profound and, and deep truths. And, and not only deep truths, but, but some practical aspects to those truths. And, and, and so here's really the second point that I want you to note in your in your taking of notes and this is cover chapter 6 3 all the way through verse 10 but it's this having been justified by faith 
we share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which is displayed in baptism. This is the overarching truth. Paul will make sub-truths to this, sub-points um, to you for this, where the Lord speaks to your heart, where you hear something that's new and um, important to, to your heart this morning, I encourage you to jot those down underneath that category. But this is the overarching truth that Paul wants us to understand and remember. Having been justified by faith, we share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which is displayed in baptism. Let's look at it. There in verse 3 where he can, uh, continues on. He says, do you not know? Do you not know? Really, I think saying, I know you know. I know you know this. I know you know the truth of what's happened. I, I know you know who Christ is, what he has done, what he's accomplished for you. And he asks it in this way, do you not know? I know you know. He'll continue to use that word no throughout this passage. But even next week, we're going to see the exact same structure that we're seeing in this passage. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? So remember it this week. Get ready for it again next week. You're going to see that same language. Paul making two arguments a very, in a very similar way. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So many truths that Paul wants us to remember that are going to be the bedrock and the foundation of what's to come in verse 11. And so we have to be able to better understand this. And again, he's speaking to Christians, those who have been justified by faith, those who have repented of their sins and believed in Christ alone for their salvation, those who have gone from being in Adam to being now in Christ. We share, as you heard in those scriptures, we share in Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. In, in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his 
death. Um, maybe you can think back to your baptism. Maybe you can think of uh, your pastors or, uh, or your, your parents or whoever's words um, that, that was watching over your baptism in that moment. And, and you may remember back to that moment when they dipped you under the water and said you're buried with Christ in baptism. And then just after that, raised to walk in the newness of life. This is, this is the passage where we get that language from. This is the picture um, that, w- that helps us to understand what has been done for us. And, and through faith, let me, let me say that Paul's use of baptism here is not to say that baptism is what saves us. That in the dunking under water or even sprinkling of water is what cleanses us and, and what unites us with Christ. As I said in that point, baptism just displays what has already happened in our hearts. And that's important uh, lest we think that having raised a hand, lifted a head, walked an aisle, got in line in a baptistry having done some of those things, that we are saved, that we are justified before God, that we had been transferred from in Adam to in Christ. Uh, That may, like baptism, be an outward display of what has already happened in your heart, but raising your hand, praying a prayer, walking an aisle, getting in some water at church doesn't save you. It displays God's salvation that has already happened in you. God takes dead sinners and reveals to them their sin against a holy and righteous God. And recognizing how good and how great our God is and how we have sinned against him, having seen that and heard that and realized that and believed that to be true for the very first time, having been made alive in Christ, we repent. We believe. We acknowledge and identify ourselves with Christ. We move forward in obedience in baptism. But baptism, raising a hand, praying a prayer, is not what saves us. They simply display what has already happened in us when God saves us, when God justifies us there. And so when we have been saved, we are united with Christ in a death like his. In verse 4, it goes on and says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, essentially saying that our old self was dead in our sins and trespasses and We died to that old life. We buried that old old life six feet under. It's been covered over. We're not going back to it. We've been raised to walk, what it says. Raised uh, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. It's interesting because when you read that verse, you might expect a different ending where it says that 
We were united with, uh, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's what you might come to expect in that verse. And, and that's true, and we'll get to that. But Paul inserts and says here that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too might have something available to you right here and right now. Not just something that's to come in the future, that you'll have a new, when you physically die on this earth, that your body, when Christ returns, will be resurrected to be able to live with him forever in heaven. That's true, but he's saying right here, right now, you have been united with Christ. Your old in Adam life has died, and if Christ has been raised from the dead, then you can trust that you too, spiritually, have been raised to walk in the newness of life. So how could you continue in sin? If your old self died and you've been raised to walk in this newness of life, how can we continue in sin? Paul is trying to explain. So one of the benefits of having been justified uh, by faith and united and sharing with Christ in death and burial and resurrection is that we have this newness of life. Uh, that our old life is dead, that we have this newness of life here and now, but he goes beyond that and says that we'll also enjoy that eternal life. In verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That, that's, that's the point that you would imagine coming right there. If Christ has been resurrected then one day too, we too will be resurrected. And all of these earthly problems, all of these earthly sufferings, all of these earthly sins, all of these earthly troubles, all of these earthly hang-ups will be done away with. They'll be gone. And even when our physical body dies, whether it be at 99, 59, 29 or 9, we will be resurrected with Him to be able to enjoy an eternal life with Him one day. Having been justified by faith in Christ, this is what we have available to us. This hope of looking forward to being resurrected. And, and so if we have this eternal life that is waiting for us when we die here, how, why would we ever want to go back and live in accordance with the old life that doesn't have resurrection and eternal life waiting for us, has eternal death waiting for us, eternal separation from God for all eternity waiting for us? Why would we continue in sin, continue in Adam, continue in the old ways that lead to eternal death when we have been brought, traded, transferred to be in Christ, to be able to enjoy all of his many blessings, not only the newness of life now, but the eternal life uh, once we die here on this earth. He'll go on even beyond just the blessings of um, our old life dying, having the newness of life, and having a resurrection like His. He'll go on in 
verse 6 and 7, describing this freedom that we have. We know, in verse 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with Him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That brought to nothing is emphatic in the original language of of Paul's writing. That the old body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, listen, enslaved to sin. And even the tenses of the verb help us in that verse where it says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's brought to nothing once and for all, a a point in time. It's been done. It's been finished. It's been accomplished like we sung just a little bit earlier. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. When he died, he had those words on his lips. It is finished. And when you, having been justified by faith, Repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You're united with Him in death so that the penalty of your sin was also brought to death. It is finished. That it might be brought to nothing. Remember that, Christian. Consider that. If you're not a Christian, that your sins and trespasses could be brought to nothing by faith in Christ because of what He did for you on the cross. Our body of sin, just the body, the list of sins and works that we have committed against God brought to nothing. I know for myself and probably for you, when we think about the body of our sin, not only this sinful body, but the body of sin that would be listed out all of your grievances and rebellions against the Lord, if that could be brought to nothing before a holy and righteous God, would you not want to get in on that? It only comes through Christ and His death and His resurrection. It is brought to nothing, and He goes on, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So once and for all, our body of sin was brought to death, but now and forevermore, present tense, we would not be enslaved to sin. What Christ did once on the cross and brought our sin to nothing, He has now given us something, freedom that lasts forever. We are no longer enslaved to sin, chained to sin, locked to sin any longer. And this will be important to remember looking at next week's passage when we get there. But just have in your mind that picture of bondage, of being chained to sin. When Christ died and by faith we died with Him, that chain was broken. That body of sin was left behind and buried with Christ there on the cross. We have this great freedom now. We're no longer chained to sin. We're chained to Christ. We're enslaved to Christ as our master. 
These are truths. These are truths of those who have gone from being in Adam to being in Christ. Those whom God has brought from death to life. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Christ. And he says in verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. The word set free there is now and into the future. A perfect tense verb. And it's the same word that's used earlier in Romans, justify. For one who has died has been justified from their sins. Their sins have been paid for once and for all. And you're no longer chained to them. You're set free from them. They have become nothing because Christ has paid everything for them. Christian, this is what you need to remember. This is what Paul knows that they are forgetful of. We too need to remember of it because we too are forgetful of these things. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, now if we have died with Christ, and we have, we believe that we also will live with him in eternal life. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer, listen, has dominion over him. Jesus died This is the truth of the gospel. This is the most important aspects of the good news of Jesus Christ. Not that you can have a better life tomorrow. The good news is that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. And he was not resuscitated like Lazarus. He was not resuscitated like the Little boys and little girls in the, in the Gospels in the New Testament. He was not raised to life and resuscitated back to life to live a few more days, months, years on the earth to one day have to die again. He was resurrected. He will never die again. He triumphed over death. He literally died, was buried And on the third day, he rose again. And this is why this verse says, um, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That word dominion is important. Remember that. He already took the punishment for our sins. Sin has no dominion over him any longer. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. What's the phrase? Once for all. Underline, circle, write that phrase down. Let that be a reminder to you this week um, when you are pursuing faithful obedience to the Lord. He did it once and for all. Remind yourself of that truth when you have fallen short again of the glory of God. To stand back up and say, he died once and for all. 
My sins have been brought to nothing. I'm no longer enslaved to these things. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. These are the truths that Paul so desperately wants his readers in the first century, specifically in Rome, to remember. And these are the truths that the Holy Spirit wants us as a church to remember this morning. These are the truths that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wants you, Christian, you, son and daughter of the Lord, to remember this morning. This is what it means to no longer be in Adam, but in Christ. When Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead, you were, having been justified by faith, in faith you were united to him in those moments. Your sin, dead. Your sin, buried, done away with. Chains, broken. You, spiritually, in that moment, being resurrected to the newness of life, to be able to enjoy an eternal life, to no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the identity of all who have been justified by faith. Those who have made that transfer from in Adam to in Christ, from one team to the next. And remember, it wasn't us who made the transfer happen. It was the Lord who accomplished all of that. And so, if that is true, and it is, it's true of all Christians, and it could be true of you if you're not a Christian this morning, having recognized and realized who the Lord is and who you are apart from Him, sinful, rebellious, deserving of punishment, deserving of eternal separation, uh, believing that Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead, God has transferred you from being in Adam to in Christ. And you can enjoy those truths yourself. So if that's true of Christians, if that could be true of you by faith this morning, Paul goes on, and for the very first time in all of the book of Romans, Paul commands something. For the very first time, Paul stops and says, based on all of that, all of what we have said thus far, and specifically what I just said in chapter 6. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider. That's the imperative. That's the command. Consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You go back to the question in verse, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You can't. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God. This is the last truth I, I want you to make sure you write down if you're taking notes this morning that you might grasp the weight of this imperative, of this command, that this might be our application as a church. This might be your application as a Christian. This might be your application as a son or a daughter in Christ. This morning, consider. Consider that you are no longer on Team Adam. You've been transferred to be on Team Christ. You have a new identity. You have a new power available to you. You are no longer dragging behind you your sins and trespasses. You have a new playbook. You have a new outlook on life. You have a new hope and a future in life. Consider yourselves as you are, Paul says. Consider your identity. Your identity is dead to sin and alive to God. Both of those. Not only consider yourself dead to sin, but that command is charged to the second part of the verse, consider yourselves alive to God. Both of those things are true, and both of them are uh, needed and helpful in our walk with the Lord. But he goes on and explains, how are we to do that? That's the kind of overarching command, but there's several more commands following that one. And let me just say that that consider is a present tense command, meaning that you are to always consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God, even when you sin later this afternoon. Remember these things again. Live in light of these things again. Do not wallow in the shame and chain yourselves back to your body of sin any longer. Stand back up, being made alive in Christ, alive in God, in Christ Jesus, and walk again in the power of the Holy Spirit and faithful obedience to Him. But how are we to do that? Paul gives us a couple practical, a couple more imperatives, a couple more commands. Um, he says in verse 12, one way that you are to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God is, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin therefore reign. Again, this is a present tense command saying that you are to never let sin reign over your mortal body, but it's, it's really saying stop letting sin reign. Stop letting sin rule over your life. He uses the word reign here, and I think it's easy for us to just step back and pause for a second to consider the imagery of a king, a monarch, whom we don't live under, um, but a king or a queen or a monarch ruling over its subjects and sitting on the throne and what they say goes. And Paul is saying, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And one way you're going to do that is stop letting sin sit on the throne of your life. 
Stop letting it have Christ's place. Christ died for your sins. He is the only one that deserves to be able to sit on the throne of your life. And yet you're allowing, I'm allowing sin to take Christ's place on the throne. How offensive. How offensive. Every time we choose to sin, fall back into temptation, we're taking Christ off the throne and allowing whatever that sin is to take Christ's place in that moment. Idolizing pleasure. Idolizing ourselves. Idolizing a feeling. Idolizing something in Christ's place instead of Christ being able to rule and reign over us. Let not sin therefore reign. Stop, Christian. Stop letting sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Imagine again that illustration of you're now on this new team and yet you're letting the coach on the other sideline dictate what you're doing on the field. Rather than listening to your coach who's right by you, who's got all of the future planned out for you, knows all of the scheme, knows all the plays, has everything at his hands available to give to you, you're working even extra hard to be able to listen to the coach on the other side and to try to be able to run those plays in in the field of life that the Lord has given to us. And God... Paul is writing these words to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago, but it's God who is saying to the church in Rome, it's God who is saying to us, it's God who's saying to you, Christian, stop. It's God who's saying to your pastor, stop. Let us stop letting sin reign over our lives. Let us consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. How else? How else can we, can, can we do that? In verse 13, do not present your members. Or again, present tense verb, present tense imperative, stop presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Stop it. Stop giving sin your time. Stop giving sin your eye. Stop giving sin your ear. Stop giving sin your heart. Stop giving sin your day. Stop giving sin your attention. Stop giving sin anything that the Lord has given you. Your body, your instruments. Stop giving them to sin. Stop giving them to the old team to the old you to be able to use them in the way that they wanted to use them and start giving them once and for all Paul says not not a present tense verb in in the middle of verse 13 but an aorist imperative and command now begin to do this now present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present yourselves to God as you are, dead to sin and alive to God, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
So this is kind of a twofold. Stop giving sin. Stop giving your old self who has been crucified with Christ on the cross and raised to walk in the newness of life. Stop giving your old self your hands, your eyes, your ears, your mind. Stop giving anything that the Lord has given you breath in your lungs, money in your bank account, whatever it may be, stop giving it to your old self. Stop giving it to sin. Because when you do, sin takes those things and reigns over you and uses all of your instruments for its passions. So starve sin. Don't give it any more water. Don't give it any more food. Don't give it any more air and kill it. Stop presenting sin with all the things that the Lord has given you and give them back to the Lord. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members. So come to the Lord Let Christ be on the throne. Lay down your life before the Lord as He is sitting on the throne and present your life to Him. And then bring everything else that you have. Your bank account, your gifts, your talents, your home, your treasures, um, all of those things and lay them before the Lord as if He is King because He is. That's how you let Christ reign in your life rather than letting sin reign in your life. Some of us need to remember our identity in Christ this morning so that we might better do these things. Some of us need to hear the Lord in a command this morning say, Stop. Stop. Whatever you're doing, whatever you've been doing, whatever sin just continues to come back in your life, starve, suffocate. Don't let it have Christ's place in your life. And for some of us, some of us that means a radical shift and change in life and use of our time. For some of us, that's going to mean confession to another brother or sister so that they can get their hands around the neck of sin and help us to starve it. For some of us, that's going to mean taking radical steps and actions to be able to break sinful habits so that they're put to light, put to death now as Christ has made available to us. And he closes in this, with this in verse 14. For sin will have no, what's the word? Dominion. Will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. By no means. Sin has no dominion over you. You ought not to continue in it. Sin has no dominion over you, Christian, 
because death has no dominion over Christ any longer. We saw that to be true in verse 9. And the result of that is that sin has no dominion over you. In Christ, you have the very power that was available to him to be perfectly, faithfully obedient to God. We have available to us to walk in faithful obedience. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily, but when you fall, we remember again our identity in Christ. We remember that we've, we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. And having been justified by faith, we can even look backwards and remember our baptism that displayed the good news of the gospel in our life. To remember that picture that when one is baptized, they are buried Their old life is buried. Their sin is buried at the foot of the cross. And they are raised to walk in the newness of life. Remember that picture. Remember that picture of your own baptism. To remember that that picture of baptism just is a shadow. And it just displays what happened in your heart already. So live like it. Live like it. Consider yourself dead to sin and raised to walk in the newness of life. Consider yourself dead to sin to be able to enjoy a resurrection life, eternal life with God in heaven. Consider yourself dead to sin, body of sin defeated, chains that enslaved you to sin broken, and are now alive with freedom in Christ. Consider yourself like that and stop letting sin reign and let Christ reign. Stop giving sin all that the Lord has already given you and give it back to the Lord. Only then will we be acting like we're on Christ's team. Only then will we be able to enjoy all the fullness of joy that he has for us. Only then will we be able to have the hope that that is made available to us in Christ. Only then will we be able to be used by the Lord for His name's sake, for His honor and for His glory in this life. This is a a convicting passage, a convicting really pause in Paul's letter, having gone from indicative truth statement one after the other for six chapters and gets to this point and says consider remember who you are in Christ and stop living as if you're not in Christ and it's a word that we need to hear this morning as a church and if you know in the depths of your heart having continued in sin, having not found yourself in Christ and know that you're still in Adam, having realized who God is and what Christ has done and wanting to be transferred to his team, realize that even the desire of you wanting to be transferred to his team is a mark of the Lord making the transfer 
available to you already. So repent of your sin and believe in Christ this morning and enjoy what it means to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do abundantly more than all I even know to ask or imagine this morning. I pray, God, that you would encourage the faint heart and support the weak and help the suffering this morning. That they would remember who they are in Christ. I pray, God, that you would at the same time rebuke, challenge, and convict us as sinners this morning who treat our sin cheaply and continue in it thinking that grace will abound. God, if that's true in our life, we have not fully understood your grace and the cost at which you paid, the price that you paid, the punishment that you took when you took our place on the cross. Forgive us for treating sin cheaply. God, let us consider what was done on the cross. Let us consider what you've done in our hearts and in our lives. You've brought us from death to life. Let us stop using all that you have given to us for sin. Let us stop letting sin reign over us so that we might know what it is to be better united to Christ, better united to one another, better united to our Father as sons and daughters. So often, God, we, we maybe in our mind know our identity but have yet to fully embrace it and live in it and know the depths at which you have for us in it. And so, God, let this be a turning point for many, for us as a church, that we would persevere in Christ, no longer being dragged back into our old ways of in Adam. So, God, help us. Help us, I pray, in a way that only you can. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.